Hello and welcome to Mimi UU. I'm Mimi Nicklin, the host of the show. This podcast is anonymous and it's audio only without names to protect from unconscious bias or judgment and to allow true empathy to grow. The goal of the show is to share diverse stories from around the world by giving people a platform to share openly so that other people like you can understand diverse realities from around the globe. We exist to create empathy and not just talk about it. Welcome to Me, Me, You, You. Hello and welcome back to Me, Me, You, You. There isn't ever a particular show that I, let's say, look forward to more than another or that I rate any differently from any other because, of course, every conversation holds its own value. But there are some shows that when you come into the studio to record, you have an innate sense that this is going to be a conversation that might just change the world for some of you listening in the power of the story and in the honesty of wit with which I know this guest is, is willing to share. So I'm very excited to, to bring this new guest into the studio today. And as I always begin, I do just want to confirm that this is a totally anonymous conversation and your name and location will not be revealed unless you choose to do so. Are you okay with that today? I am. Wonderful. Well, as I said, I've entered the studio with great excitement and energy to hear from you and to hear the story that you want to share with the world. Tell me, what compelled you to come and join us on Mimi UU today? I listened to your podcast and I love that it is really putting personal egos and identities aside and really focusing in on the things that connect us and that make our individual journeys something universal. And I think my story, while it's deeply personal and very unique in many ways, I think that that's all of the philosophy and the way that we got through is very universal and something that anybody can tap into. And I call that the circle of love, which is my philosophy and also a community of people and also a kind of, I suppose, a methodology of how I try to live my life. The circle of love. What a beautiful way to open a show. Why don't you tell us what that means? How how did the circle of love become something that's valuable in your life? So I, I think it's very connected to the African term Ubuntu, which means I am because you are. In many ways, it was the, the actual name came from a friend of mine who wrote a beautiful children's story called The Circle of Love. But really, the philosophy is around really around care and creativity and community and the knowledge and the sort of self-awareness that I certainly don't have everything that I need to raise my children. So I chose to very consciously surround them with people who had some of the things that I didn't. And I love that in Africa, unlike many other places in the world, every adult woman is referred to as a mama. 
and every father is referred to as Tata. And I think that's very much at the heart of it is that I do believe that certainly my children and I have benefited a huge amount from having many mothers and many fathers and that I've tried very hard to kind of fill out all the aspects of their lives because I, I'm aware of the fact that I can't fulfill all of their needs. And so that circle of love is really around, it started all about the children, my own children, and then it didn't really have a name. And then over the years, around 2010, I did a project with a local school, which I called the Circle of Love School Arts Program. Actually, I think it was about 2007, actually. It was in the early days of Facebook, and it was a very powerful tool to have Facebook literally at my fingertips. I joined to run, to make the project happen. And there was a local school down the road, which is attended by indigent children who travel from outside of the city in economically very poor communities in order to attend the school, which is very under-resourced. And so that school, I wanted to bring Circle of Love to the teachers, actually, was my main motivation for doing it because I, I, um, I saw that there were more than 50 children in a class primary school. And I just thought, how do you even teach 50 children at a time? Mm -hmm. So I rallied the creative arts community and then I, I rallied Facebook and we launched an eight-week school arts intervention so that we could take half of the class out of, away from the teacher so she could focus on 25 children, which is a bit more reasonable. And then we went to run classes around the creative arts, so around drama, music, dance, and poetry and puppetry. And we developed the skills. So everything was a volunteer. Nobody got paid. We raised money to, to cover hard costs like transport costs. And we had 300 children in the center of the Circle of Love. And after eight weeks, we mounted a show with an eco theme where the children told their own stories that they had developed. And then we shot it and gave each child a film where they were the humor of their own story. And a few months later, I organized for another MPO to come in and run a food garden because the children had spoken a lot about nature and uh, taking care of each other, taking care of nature. And they started three sold out shows and then quite a sustained interest thereafter. And I think it was very, touching for everybody that was involved and I know from the letters from the children what a massive impact it had in their lives and that many of them carried that with them into their adult years and stayed in touch with me and some of them went into the creative arts and pursued their dance careers and it was it was immensely powerful so it was great because it went from just my kids to then building a community around 300 children who could benefit. But then the story took a bit of a turn because I was sort of building up doing other circle of love projects and sort of rallying community. And then 
I had a crisis in my own family where my daughter, I have uh, two children, and my daughter, who was 10 years old, was shockingly diagnosed with an extraordinarily rare disease, a form of bone cancer called chordoma. And in the world of rare diseases, it's a bit of an anomaly. And even in the world of chordoma, it is her particular case was also kind of unusual. And so it was a shocking diagnosis. It was a very late diagnosis. It's a bone cancer that had affected seven vertebrae on her thoracic spine, which are pretty much destroyed. And so the local doctors didn't have great news for us at all. And so we got on the internet and we started searching for help and researching the centers of excellence around this disease, which even though it's extremely rare, there are, there are experts in this particular area around the world. And we advocated for my daughter and trying to find somebody that believed that there was a surgery that could be done. So we had three options in the end. And we were a little bit outside of the medical fraternity now from our home country. So we were acting in kind of in isolation, which was a very big decision to make, kind of interviewing these doctors and trying to make the right decision on which country to go to because certainly there was no help available in our own country. And in the end, we went to Boston, Massachusetts, to um, an incredible team at Mass General Hospital where my daughter, we were lived in the hospital for some seven months and when Natalie was diagnosed, the community that had been a part of the circle of love just, it was unbelievable. They, they just came around us and they held us in the most extraordinary way and shared the story with others. And, and I, I, I started a blog and I, and I, and I blogged. We had to raise a huge amount of money because now we're outside of medical aid because we are leaving the country. We have telephone numbers, amount of money to raise. I had uh, negotiated with Mass General Hospital to cap the hospital fees and we were just blown away. So not only our family fundraising, but also people that didn't even know us that started fundraising on our behalf, that engaged with the story and put Nathalie very much at the center of the circle of love. And then, because it actually can be a little bit overwhelming when you get, I always thought to myself, I kind of used to imagine myself as I am a hollow reed was a kind of a mantra because if you allow fear to hang around inside your body, it will crush you. But equally true is if you get a lot of love and attention coming at you, that's also kind of overwhelming, can also flatten you. So I used to imagine myself literally as this conduit and just allow it to flow 
so that I could, in fact, advocate for my child and share the story and raise the money. And just really blown away that it became a bit of a global story. We had you know, some school in Scotland did a bake sale. We had, we had children and adults literally all around the world that helped us to raise funds for Natalie to have the surgery. So I want to just ask you a little bit more there, if, if I may. I find that insight that you just shared really unique and interesting, which was if you allow fear to consume you, it, you know, it will debilitate you. But you also said that sometimes an outpouring of love and attention is equally overwhelming. I would love just to understand that a little bit more because I think it is a, a very powerful and unique emotion, feeling. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I think that I'm talking about when you get a lot of attention and it, 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 it's sometimes very, I mean, obviously there's different personalities, um, but I do feel like it will stop you up if you're focused on all of the attention and even if it's the most beautiful intentions that are coming to you and it's about love and care, I do think that it can be it can be so overwhelming that it it, 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 it can get in the way of focusing on what you need and it can think you need to be especially when you're a family in crisis you need to be in flow and I think one of the reasons why I managed the situation well and that I was I was very steady during that time was because I really was very conscious about allowing the emotions to come but not to invite them in for a cup of tea to hang around to allow them to come and to just move along because they will keep coming if you hang on to any wife and emotion whether it's fear or love or, or, or the spectrum in between and do believe that you get distracted from um, what you might be to focus on and then it really becomes about you instead of the thing that you're trying to do mm, that's yeah it's fascinating and, and the idea of flow state in a family situation you know i've always heard about being in the flow in the boardroom as it were so tell us back to the story in that moment of flow you are raising money you have your blog you are trying to get your 10 year old daughter to the usa to a country that is not yours where you subsequently end up living in a hospital for seven months tell us about that journey to leaving the country and and making that shift and of course she i think you said she was 10 years old so did she understand what was going on how how was that time nine yeah naturally with nine and her brother was well, my daughter was 10 and her brother was nine so they they were thick as thieves the the two of them and and i tried to be i was pretty honest with them at a high level uh, where I would explain, for example, that we were we were interviewing doctors looking for a solution. We told Natalie that she had a form of cancer and that we were looking for solutions and that uh, ultimately we did find people that, that were believed that she could be treated successfully. And so we told her 
very high level. And to be honest with you, I didn't have the money <laughs> that we needed technically to get on that plane. But the doctors were very struck by us. It was, it was an incredible experience in that we really hurdled all of the regular, because we didn't go for, through the doctors, we were advocating ourselves. So it's, it, it was kind of a strange situation where I was on that mobile number to the top surgeons and the top doctors having kind of these frank conversations which normally wouldn't happen because normally you would be going through your local doctor and you would have to kind of you wouldn't get that far up the food chain and they said to me I said well we haven't got the money and they said just come we'll make it work just come so <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I mean you do what you gotta do really we just we just got on a plane and we went and I went ahead with my daughter and my little boy stayed um, with his dad and then followed a few months later. But it was it was such a world of it because initially I wasn't entirely sure that we should leave the country until until I could believe that we really had a world hope because it doesn't always make sense to... I didn't believe that it was we were really, really in with a child to to be successful. I wouldn't have left the country because it doesn't make sense if you're in an advanced stage of disease to separate yourself out from your loved ones, your family and friends and go to the country where I think there was one person in Boston that I had met before that we literally didn't know anyone and then and then a friend of a family's family member those kinds of connections but because the circle of lab blog and because people had shared the story when we arrived in boston we had this little welcoming party of people that had formed a, a, the boston circle of love for us that we didn't even know and so we had this incredibly soft landing because people moved heaven and earth to hold us all through that journey and because the doctors knew we were kind of out on our limb when we arrived at the hospital we had a bit of a VIP arrival because Natalie's case was very very unusual so there was, she was sort of like a bit of a medical uh, marvel in a way they were all very fascinated with her case and then they were very it was very entertaining because when they met her they were kind of baby talking her and then within about three minutes they realized that they had quite an extraordinary child in their place <laughs> and so they adjusted their behavior and treated her she was very very quiet and polite but also very clear so she was very very respectful but she also spoke her her mind as well so they were being confused I think and just sort of I suppose disarmed, I suppose, is a, a good word to describe it. And then absolutely enchanted because she was, I think when you're very ill and you know that you might die, I think it's like taking a truth serum. And you often find this with people that are extremely ill and that they are facing a short life, that they they cut through a lot and they say things that matter and they they um yeah they 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 
they definitely don't waste their time on things that don't matter to them. And I think that's mm. true of, of all people that are extremely ill. I definitely think that. And what matters is, you know, having the best possible time that you can for as long as you can. When it's all on the line, you find yourself laughing a lot. And I, I always say to people, if you if you're ever feeling miserable and you want to be brightened up, it sounds completely counterintuitive, but honestly, it, the, the the children that are very, very ill are the ones, I mean, obviously, if they're, they're well enough, they, they will bring, they, they're, they're chasing joy and the families are chasing joy. So um, that's what we did, you know, all the way through treatment. We kind of were a little bit disruptive, if I'm honest with you, in the hospital system. We moved into and then with my background in the creative arts I understood the value of visual storytelling and the, of the environment and we reinvented every space that we occupied and people from around the world sent us these beautiful postcards and artworks and these incredible messages and we put up this big map on the wall so people could see where we could where we came from and then we ended up making these friends all over the hospital system and then they would come and visit our room even if they were in a completely different area they would come they would come by and visit us wow and then the family came to join us for after a period of radiation treatment then it was all on the line or this massive surgery where they were going to remove seven vertebra from her thoracic spine, which is a lot of vertebra. If you, yeah. if you, if you put your hand stretched out over your chest, right, that's that's how many vertebrae. It's, it's most of your, <laughs> of your chest area spine. And it was a very dangerous surgery. It was a very high-risk surgery. The tumor which in the case of Ordoma is a gelatinous um, so it's hard to work with and they have to take the whole tumor all in one go they can't cut away um, and they have to take a clear margin and the margin between the tumor and her spinal cord was where the, uh, everything mattered in that space so she had a two-stage surgery, which by all accounts, there was an unprecedented number of services involved in her, in the, in the actual surgery. And it was kind of a preparatory surgery where they put in rods in her, in her back. Um, so that when in the second surgery, they actually did remove the tumor that along with what was left of the vertebra, that obviously that the, her structure would hold and they would be able to take a bone from her leg and put it inside a titanium cage because titanium and bone like to bond with each other and then create that spinal column structure um, so that the titanium and the bone would then be able to bond with the rest of her spine. So she wow. had this wild, wild surgery and 
it was a massive celebration because it went extremely well. Everybody was doing the Dance of Joy. And it was very tough because shortly after the surgery, they put her into what they call a halo, which is a harsh-looking structure. It looks a little bit like a kind of medieval culture something like that. It's really, really hard to look at because it is metal kind of drilled into her head and then these pin rods down to a hard tunic made out of like a plastic that was especially molded for her body so that her entire upper body would be completely immobilized. And that was incredibly difficult to cope for her but she was a pretty extraordinary child and she made a really good initial recovery and within a couple of days she was standing up oh my gosh that's unbelievable as, as a as a listener to that story to imagine a surgery of that extent and to hear that a few days later she was able to stand that that I mean it's it almost kind of a miracle it was kind of amazing. There were a lot of tears and, and celebrations all around the world because everybody, the the, the, the love community was now following and then the, the hospital community and the Boston community and actually all these other countries, people kind of kept vigil through those surgeries. So there was this unbelievable sense of that we were not alone. And it was, as a mother, it, 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 I have such it's very hard to find the words to express the gratitude that I felt for how people held us in that moment because it can be very lonely being a million miles away and it can be very lonely going through such a big experience. But we were unbelievably supported by our family and friends. And one thing to also, I wanted to mention is that Circle of Love had a very distinct structure so when I was talking earlier about about feeling kind of overwhelmed by all of the attention one of the things that we did and very early on kind of the the very inner circle of my closest family like my siblings and best friends they were kind of almost took on the role of gatekeepers where they would buffer us me and Natalie and my son from some some of the attention because we, there's a lot of publicity there's a lot of mm. a, a lot going on and a lot of people wanting to help and so one of the things that when I do a bit of peer-to-peer counseling now with other families in the rare diseases community that might be looking for help I always tell them it's really really helpful people are desperate to help the, the people that love you and and that care about you they desperately they feel absolutely helpless and it's and it's useful to be able to figure out what you need and to give language to what you need so that you can have the gatekeepers around you can kind of communicate what is really needed and so coming up with those ideas when we were far away obviously we were raising money so that was a very genuine need and people did respond to that but also people that live 
kind of close to us. They wanted to bring food. I, I, I think every culture has its food stuff, which is traditional to bring to a family in crisis. And, you know, in the Muslim communities, there's like brayani and, and, and the chicken soup in the Jewish community. And it seems that a lot of people in my community, it's lasagna. And at one time... <laughs> The way it was does to relate your way through. <laughs> I was like, okay, we have to coordinate this a little bit more because people will bring it anyway because they're desperate to do something. So maybe a little bit of coordination. So one of my friends, we kind of appointed her the Minister of Love Food so that she could coordinate and express to people, say, thank you so, so much for your offer. But actually... A whole lot of people have brought today what would be really wonderful is if you could rather do something next week so you know it was a little bit more coordinated it was kind of finding a way to put out what we needed and then in america it was kind of amazing i have a great story to tell about america so we landed up applying for housing um near the hospital for my son to stay with my friend while I, I was kind of bouncing between the, living in the hospital with Natalie and then and then being with my son as much as I could. But we used to put activities together. So we discovered that people would turn up at that apartment and drop off these groceries and then my son and my friend would bake or make food and then they would bring that food across it, which gave them a great activity. And then they would bring that food over to the hospital and it would feed all of the nurses and all of the families in the unit along with us. And I was blown away because I never knew who brought the food to us and it happened time and again. And then one day I was taking a walk right next to the hospital because I never went more than running distance away from the hospital. So I used to walk around the hospital and I was um, on the street with my son and I was standing next to this couple that were getting onto these bicycles and they were talking about us. And I was <laughs> all riddled but confused and I was like, oh, well, I introduced ourselves and it turned out they had just been to our apartment to drop off groceries and they had put together a community with their brain group where they were taking it in turns to put groceries together and bring them to our apartment our son. but I'd never met them I didn't know them I didn't even know how we were connected to them or how they heard the story but yeah I mean it was just it was such a humbling experience and too yeah an unbelievable story of empathy as well. I mean, if you think about the the goal of of this show, which is of course to allow people to empathize with your story and and your journey as a mother, but also just to talk about empathy and and the fact that people that are total strangers are able to lean into your reality and understand, you know, that we need to feed our children, that we all need to eat. And, and make an effort to to bring their community into that, to help you in a way that was so actively needed. It was such an extraordinary, so really the power of storytelling, I think. 
and also the power of positivity because I was extremely protective of Natalie. So I needed to find a creative way to share the story that it was very high risk in the beginning. I remember there was a point where I wasn't even that keen to leave the country because, you know, she was a very sick little girl. So I needed to find a way to protect her. So I approached a friend of mine from the world of creativity and business and asked him to do a whiteboard animation with it. He was a graphic facilitator. So we developed this whole story as a graphic animation, telling the story and so that that was something that could be shared without necessarily putting that face. Mm-hmm. Where a lot of pictures on the blog of the toes or the side of her head or whatever, there was never, I never published anything that she hadn't pre-approved. So I think that that power of the storytelling is what helps people to really connect and that we tell the story of hope and inspiration. And when I ask people later over the years, why, what was it about? So there's lots of stories about very sick children. There's far too many stories about it. What was different about our story? And and, and the answer was that, that, that they felt like they belonged that there was a sense of belonging. So even though they didn't know us and they knew that they would never meet us, that they felt like they belonged to a community. And I thought that that is empathy and community. And that's a deep and abiding connection that years and years later sustains even now, which is kind of extraordinary. So back to the story, it gets a bit tough. So we were discharged from Mass General Hospital and we went round the corner to a rehab hospital. And during the time we were at the rehab hospital, things got really tough. There were some complications. We landed up having to be readmitted and it was very, very, very tough time for a month. And eventually Natalie stabilized enough to have proton beam radiation post-surgery that she needed. And eventually, eventually managed to have the, the uh, halo removed, which was the best day ever. Mm-hmm. And she was quite a, a slight in her build. And because she was just small enough to fit into a stroller, because she didn't, didn't like being in a wheelchair. But And I used to carry her on my back a lot so that she... Didn't, she just felt like any other kid getting a piggyback. And so I think that made a big difference to her because then she was able to feel like she fit in. And we returned to South Africa very triumphant, but also with a long way to go to fully recover. And so things were going really well. We were trying to get Natty back on track with her schooling. She was working incredibly hard with a rehab team back in South Africa. It's, a, again, kind of a scary situation for me because I'm now coordinating a multidisciplinary team across, you know, two continents trying to manage for care. And uh, we were all very hopeful. And then Natty started really not doing so great and we landed up after a scan 
we saw there was a recurrent and we went back to the States and we rejoined the team that the hospital was kind of incredible. We hadn't even finished paying off our fees from the year before, which I'd been, I'd been going in with little jars of dimes every week from people's bake sales and many ways we were just I, I just made sure that every week I walked in with something even if it was like you know ten dollars I would just make sure that something down and I think that because of that they again their empathy really hunting and they they really embraced us and they they allowed us to come back into treatment. The same doctors really stepped up. They all waived their fees. Everybody did a lot to to help us get all the help that we possibly could get. But it was very difficult. And Natalie had another big surgery where they removed a number of her ribs. She had a really, really hard time coming out of uh, out of theatre. And it was a very fraught period of time and she needed a lot of support in order to be able to breathe. And I, I had an enviable task of having to tell my now 11-year-old child that she wasn't going to get there. And the, the challenge became to get her stable enough to bring her home. Because that was that was the goal is to try and get ourselves home, and it took a long time. Um, but then, in true Natalie style, she bounced back, and she <laughs> she was even well enough that we we had arranged with the hospital had helped us to get a medical escort home. And at the time, it was I mean I think it was probably hundred percent necessary. But at the time that all those meetings were in place, they were very clear with me that that, that could only happen if, if Natalie went straight from the ICU to the airport and then, you know, fly, fly back to our home country with a medical escort. But right near the end, in the last couple of weeks, Natalie made this unbelievable comeback. And then our darling friends and nurses, um, they helped us have a secret escape where nobody knew or nobody could say that we'd ever left the hospital but I would never take her out to because you know it's, it's really hard you don't see the sky you don't see the outside world you're very isolated and it was very healthy and helpful to be able to say our goodbyes to America and to just be able to be outside and to have a little secret party made it super fun we got home safely and then the year that followed was filled with beauty and pain and we did I, I nursed Natalie at home all the way through to the end and I always say Natalie Natalie couldn't be cured but she was healed she was healed by the incredible love and support and empathy of this community that held us and that supported us. And she, at some point, you know, you, you, I, I 
I needed to prepare some very difficult scenarios of, of, of how she might die. And I needed to be properly, properly supported there since we chose not to go back to the hospital. And my fervent prayer, even though I was prepared for every eventuality, my prayer was that she had a merciful passing and that was granted and I'm forever grateful for that. And so kind of even Natalie's funeral was an unbelievable experience with uh, many, many, many children. And yeah, I think over a thousand people, we weren't allowed more than a thousand people. So there was a bit of a waiting list. It's bizarre to say a bit of a waiting list to go to her funeral and people that traveled from that would be coming very close to the States came out we had we had a really a really beautiful ceremony for her where she had been kind of she had done things like she had reselected photographs that were uh, approved for me to use and she was she was incredibly courageous uh in the face of death and I think one of the things that hard for people to understand is that last year even though she was extremely sick and she became sicker and sicker and sicker we had a lot of fun we created opportunities to dress up parties and basically we made as much joy and laughter as we possibly could and as part of the story is a year after Natalie was diagnosed, my niece, my brother's child, was diagnosed with a completely different rare disease, maybe not quite so rare as Natalie, but also extremely rare. And in that last year, it was really hard. I mean, Natalie would be, things were not going well with my niece either. At some point, it was not looking good for her. And Natalie would ask me, Mum, Who's going to die first, me or my cousin? And I don't know, darling, who's going to die first. So it was, it was very, she was very aware and very courageous in how she, how she held herself. And I noticed that she would make an effort with people that came to visit to put them at ease. She had, she had great empathy and compassion because she saw the people around her, adults that taking strain and she would find a way to put them at ease so that they could bear to be, it is not everybody that can walk into the home of a dying child and, and visit. So I noticed her empathy, I think was also quite extraordinary, her compassion for others and her ability to make it so that they could bear themselves in her space. So after she died, the circle of love continued and I have to say every, oh, I, I launched these little projects every now and again. Um, obviously do a lot now in terms of peer-to-peer uh, counseling -peer for other families, often people that either are looking for a diagnosis and looking for help with how do you find 
help uh, elsewhere in, in the world when you, you want a second opinion or when their families just found out that their child is going into palliative care or perhaps when a man has been recently bereaved. So those are usually the three points where people will will, ref, will refer me to a fan. I will try and support them from an from a, an emotional point of view and practically refer them where I can. And so over the years, I've done a bunch of projects that are again around the circle of love. And during COVID, we put a from the circular love community a whole lot of young people particularly who was were, have been inspired by Natalie and we launched uh, the circular love hospital project or the field hospital in our city set up support for the staff and all those brave people in the early days who went walking into the fire to help other people and we organized a beautiful for them and gifts for them and we set up a photography project where we took a photograph of every single person so that they could see what each other looked like because even the staff didn't know they were masked up in PPE and I always felt to myself it was like the rest of the world got a little taste of off through COVID what it was like to be a part of our family because while we were very connected we also never saw anybody really a very very small group of people and so I feel like COVID was like a little taste of what it was like for our family through all of those years of all of the same practices wearing PPE social distancing one of those same practices were how we lived through um, most of Natalie's illness and then through my niece's illness as well. And in the end, I have to say, I feel like we have experienced great loss, but it's also been an extraordinary privilege and most humbling of experiences. And so if there is anybody listening that's going through a really difficult crisis in their family I would encourage you to find a way to share your story in a way that makes sense for you because it allows people to engage and if you can allow yourself to be in flow and tell people what it is that you need find a way to articulate that using the people around you you too can find a way to be healed even if you can't be cured and you will find the support that you need and you'll be able to offer the support that you need because even if you're on the outer circles of knowing somebody personally you're also impacted and the people around you need to hear the story so that they can support you so the concept really is about caring for each other in a way that really 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 about deep connection and empathy and finding creative ways to express that so for me that's around storytelling and creativity and finding connections through those mediums i often find listening 
to stories that I lose all capacity to, to say something that even nearly matches the reality that you've just shared with all of us. I am I'm very inspired by two things you've, well, by many things, but by two thoughts that come to me, which is you started the show today talking about Ubuntu, which is that African term that means, you know, I am me because we are we, right? We are connected as a, as a society. And you've ended by talking about the power of storytelling to help people go through these experiences in a way that makes them less alone. And of course, we are living in a very lonely world. So the power of those two things isn't lost on me in any way. I'm conscious of time for our listeners, but I, I do want to ask one final question, which is, I just want to ask you about your son and his journey through this, because many of the concepts you've spoken about are, are relatively adult, you know, um, and he was, of course, younger, younger than your daughter and, and has watched that and been through this experience. If you're open to it, would you share just a little bit to close on on how he's dealt with this, how you've helped him through this? But for listeners out there that are going through this, how do you support other children in the process of loss? Well, uh, I can tell you that the thing, the things that have helped the most are the ocean and nature deep and abiding connection to the ocean. I think that that really, really, really helped him out. I once asked him, like, do you ever cry? And he said, why do you think, why do you think I like being in the ocean, mom? You know, so I think uh, that his grieving, I think that the ocean became his church in a way, I think, for him. It was a very, uh, it, I think probably the, that is the biggest factor. And then music. I think those are the, the, the ways that he channeled a lot of emotion. And I think that his, his sister helped him as well. I think she, she was very generous with him. And it's very difficult also because I think part of it was about grieving but also trying to find his own identity because for a lot of time uh, you know, for a long time he was the kid who had a sick sister and a sick uh, cousin and he was kind of found himself in the center of these stories but they weren't actually his stories so it became very important in the aftermath to help him find who he was not relative to anyone else but just about him and Years went by without him really saying too much on the subject. And then he did a kind of a coming of age ritual. And he told me about a profound experience that he had. And it was the first time, and it was, he was about 18 or 19 at the time. And it was the first time that he spoke profoundly like about her, what, what the loss meant to him. But my experience was to make all all as much support available to him as an option and he could take counseling he could do all sorts of things but but not to force any of that and to allow spaces and conversation where he could contribute should he wish to but not to force him and 
I've sometimes wondered, well, maybe I should have forced him. And then I realized, actually, no, it was the right thing to do because especially boys, they always, um, they will show you in their bodies more than use words often, especially my boy. But in the end, I did feel like he did find his way to finding a language around it ultimately. And I think that his sister would be immensely proud of him for the magnificent Jack man that he, he is and what a fantastic brother he was. They were both of them unbelievably generous to each other uh, around who was getting what attention when. And for her to watch him go off doing regular kid stuff, she was generous with him. It must have hurt like hell, but she was generous with him. And he was generous with the amount of time that she took of, of mine, you know, and the amount of, I had to be honest, in many ways I cried more tears over my son during that time in America and the, the, the heartache of missing out on time. I never missed a minute with Matthew, but I missed a lot of time with him. That really, there was a lot of pain for me around that. But he's a great kid. He's doing really well in the world and he's got incredible compassion and empathy for others. So we did go through a phase where I had to explain to them that you don't have to be dying to, to, to get sympathy and, and even little injuries. Are, you know, you're, you're entitled to to some compassion and, and kindness even with a non-life um and to encourage him to report those because it was he, he, I, I noticed that he, he he would make he he would and uh report his own health issues so that was quite a challenge and i think often for siblings of of children that have died from a from a disease i think they are prone to under report because they don't want to alarm anyone and i think that's really important to focus on for parents with siblings and just yeah just try to do what's right for that child because every kid is so different so yeah with him it was driving to the ocean a lot driving to wherever the wave was <laughs> to walking on the beach yeah wow. it, it did I, I mean beautifully and, and wonderfully and Again, just I think added a final dimension to what has been a story, a very inspiring story of strength that is coming from community, creativity, and, and where you've ended, which is the power of nature, really, the power of reconnecting with the natural world around us. And I think we hear about those things on social media. You know, you probably have seen a, a story or a reel on Instagram that talks about the power of Mother Nature or the need for community or you know, the power of storytelling. Um, but I feel like the show today has just weaved those three areas together in in the most powerful of ways. And I can imagine that sharing these stories is is difficult. Um, I empathize hugely with the, the journey you've been on. And I thank you equally hugely for coming on and sharing that and just allowing us to walk those years with you to take learnings from what you've already been through. Um, and to encourage anyone that's listening to find people like my guest today 
if you're on a similar journey and, and make sure that that story is something that you can own as you walk those very difficult and, and sorrowful steps. My very last question is around anonymity. We started there, but every guest has the option in the final question. Whilst the show is anonymous, you are able to reveal your identity should you wish to do so. So would you like to remain anonymous today or share with us who you are? I started off thinking that I wanted to be anonymous and it's actually what, why I came on the show. But I ended up thinking that, you know, it isn't everybody that can, that is willing to engage families that are going through a really rough time in the children's palliative care space. So I am going to say that if you are a family going through crisis in the rare diseases arena and you believe that I can be of some assistance to you, then you are welcome to reach out to me. Probably the best way is on Facebook to my, my name is Shirley Lowe and the spelling of my surname is L-O-W-E. So that's Shirley Lowe on Facebook. Shirley, thank you again uh, for the story, but also the transformation on your opinion at the end there and in such kindness and generosity, just like Natalie, putting yourself out there to help others when they need it most. So thank you very much for joining me and for everyone that was listening today. I thank you for being here with us for this, what has been an hour nearly of conversation today and helping us share empathy by leaning into the stories of other people from all over the world. Thank you all for being here and I'll speak to you all again soon. Thank you for joining us today on Mimi UU. This episode is one in a series that has been designed to create empathy in our world. If you would like to join us on the show, please click on www.joinmimiuu.com or follow us across social media at Mimi UU Show. I believe that the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. And I hope that this show is the beginning of doing just that.